0: back, although we're not going to be speaking with Don Folsom today about Nixon's darkest secrets. I thought I'd say a word or two about Tricky Dick as people look back 40 years post his resignation. Sounding off in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and repeated in the week was John Aloysius Farrell, who said it was time to cut Tricky Dick a break. He noted that to mark the 40th anniversary of the disgraced president's resignation, HBO broadcast a documentary containing new clips from the secret White House recording system that led to his downfall. These do indeed lay bare Nixon's virulent anti-Semitism and relentless paranoia, along with his single-minded desire for political survival. As we may talk about with Don Folsom, he rather famously directed aides to retrieve documents from the Brookings Institute saying, I want it done on a thievery basis. By the way, although it was long known that Nixon had proposed, or at least his aides, like Charles Colton had proposed, firebombing the Brookings Institute, And then responding with a fake fire team headed by probably future Watergate burglars, Frank Sturgis, etc. They put the kibosh on this when John Dean pointed out that if somebody died during this melee, that there'd be a murder traced back to the White House. Of course, the big question is, what was so interesting in the Brookings Institute? Well, apparently, the Nixon team felt it was evidence amassed by LBJ that back in 1968, Nixon had gone to Nguyen Van tu to torpedo the Paris peace talks and thereby increase his chance of getting elected that November. So this does explain why Nixon is on tape saying things like, God damn it, get in and get those files. Blow the safe and get it. Mr. Farrell notes that as much as Nixon deserves his disgrace, history shouldn't forget his achievements. Abroad, he did end the Vietnam War. Well, we're going to talk about that. Yeah, I guess if you torpedo the peace talks, and tell the nation you've got a secret plan to end the war, and then you do get around to ending it in your second term, under conditions no different than what were available when he first took office. I guess you can still say that technically he did end the war, but we think that's putting a rather positive spin on things. Anyway, hopefully I have a great deal more to say about that next week. We think that what presidents find when they get into situations of conflict is that it's like with World War I, hard to extract yourself. The bogus war in Iraq we got into was what? Our second longest war in American history? But of course, judging by how well things are going over there currently, you can see it was well worth the effort. Freedom is clearly on the march. Let's digress to talk a little bit about the military-industrial complex. Currently, according to the New York Times, the Air Force is calling for a weapons overhaul. In what was described as an acknowledgement that the military may be pricing itself out of business, the Air Force last month called for a shift away from big-ticket weapon systems to, to take decades to develop and move toward what Defense Department officials are calling more agile, high-tech armaments that may quickly adapt to meet a range of emerging threats. This is being called an Admission. From the Defense Department, that with military compensation and retirement costs rising sharply, the country may soon be unable to afford the military it has without making significant changes to the way it does business. Well, I don't know. The military has been bankrupting this country for decades now, if not generations. So best not to hold our breath for any reform coming along those lines. But something like, the troubled F-35 program. The Week magazine, earlier this month, published one of their briefing sessions that was exceptionally good. In fact, we may quote from damn near the whole thing and taking a look at the F-35, which is definitely worth taking a look at. Response to their question, what is the F-35? The answer is it's a state-of-the-art fighter jet that's supposed to seal America's dominance over the world skies. Conceived in 1996, The Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II was to be put into operation starting in 2010 to gradually replace the Pentagon's aging fleet of fighters, such as the F-16 and F-A-18, many of which were built in the 70s and 80s. Of course, I have to pause right there and say that something is aging doesn't mean it doesn't serve its purpose admirably well. And when you do a cost analysis, it turns out sometimes that if you can buy five fighters for the price of one, Well, in a realistic scenario where five fighters are engaging one, they got a pretty good chance of shooting down the super-duper plane. This is something the Nazis found out during World War II when their Tiger tanks, kind of the Porsche of tanks, got defeated by Russian tanks, the T-34s, which were kind of the, the Model A's, I guess you might say, of tanks, but they were cheap, rugged, and you could build a lot of them for not much money. At any rate... In the 18 years since its conception, the F-35 has proven to be so technologically ambitious that Lockheed can't seem to get it finished. There have been endless delays, budget overruns, and technical failures. The plane got grounded again recently because of an engine fire, the 13th grounding since 2007. And since the F-35 has been repeatedly redesigned, the cost of developing the plane has doubled. Are you ready for this? To a record-breaking $400 billion. Yes, for one weapon system, $400 billion. It's the most expensive weapon system ever. A single plane is going to cost $185 million. Its deployment has been pushed back to 2015 now at the earliest, with the Pentagon calling its performance immature and unacceptable. Of course, I don't think they meant that in a negative way. Military experts are wondering whether it'll ever operate as intended. Iran Corporation studies said it can't turn, can't climb, and can't run. In fact, the, the bright boys down at RAND recently did a computer simulation that would test the F-35's fighting ability in a hypothetical war with China. In the war games, when the American fighters fired their missiles and lost their stealth capability, they became visible to radar detectors and apparently got outflown by their Chinese rivals and blown out of the sky. Not surprisingly, Lockheed challenged the working results, claiming they were based on faulty assumptions. Rand obligingly then backed away from the report's conclusion, saying it didn't intend to make jet-to-jet comparisons. Well, of course not. Who could ever imagine a scenario there would be in the real world would be jet-to-jet comparisons? To the question of how advanced is the F-35, the answer is, in theory, it would be the most lethal fighter ever made. It can supposedly both bomb land targets and engage in air-to-air combat, which, in theory, will cover the diverse needs of the Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. And yes, its radar-absorbing coating, coupled with its supersonic speed, allows a stealth fighter, in quotes, to swoop into combat zones before the enemy can even detect it. Its single-engine, single-seat, carries groundbreaking software technology that's used to control a futuristic video screen inside the pilot's helmet. Information from several cameras mounted around the plane are fed back to the helmet, giving the pilot, in theory, a 360-degree view during dogfights and bombing runs. To the question, does the technology work, the answer is, it often does not. For example, the helmet's video resolution is far worse than that of the naked eyes, so pilots struggle to pick out the tiny dots the distance that might represent an enemy threat. And when it comes to maintaining one of these things, it's going to cost 40% more than with previous fighter jets. A Pentagon study has estimated that lifetime maintenance costs of all these jets are going to total at one trillion dollars. Yes, with a T, a trillion. And the magazine added that even when it works properly, the plane is handicapped by one fatal flaw design, which is that it has vertical takeoff equipment because the Marine Corps insisted the plane had this jump jet capability so fighters could take off from the short landing decks of the Corps' amphibious assault ships. But, vertically lifting a plane that weighs 35 tons requires 40,000 pounds of thrust, so Lockheed added a powerful lift fan. That bulky fan assembly has increased the drag of the plane, making its acceleration, fuel efficiency, and flying range inferior even to older Chinese jets. And to rub salt in the wound, China is now developing its own ripoff of the F-35 based on Pentagon blueprints stolen by Chinese military hackers. Guess that saved them a few bucks on the R&D. The Chinese J-31, of course, now comes without the F-35's compromising jump jet lift fans. And as a result, it's faster and more maneuverable. So what can we do as taxpayers? Well, the Pentagon could restart production on its F-22 line, although that's been dogged by its own problems, including what's described as its pilots regularly experiencing oxygen deprivation and blackouts while flying. And uh, yeah, you you can see where that could be a problem. Or they're saying military officials could skip the so-called fifth generation of fighters, like the F-35, and move straight to the sixth generation which will apparently focus on giving jets laser weaponry. Are these like the X-Wing fighters from Star Wars? Is that what Pentagon wants to build next? Because I guess the seventh generation might might involve the Death Star. Some military experts are saying the time has come to use drones, which are basically smaller and more maneuverable aircraft and don't put the pilot in jeopardy. I don't know about that, but um, the fix here looks like it's going to be tough to come by. Because the F 35 program is being described as too expensive to quit. Congressional lawmakers are keenly aware that the project supports 133,000 jobs, a number that will double when full scale production begins, if it ever does. It's spread out over 48 states, and obviously, people in Congress are reluctant to sacrifice all those jobs. The week also notes that many of America's allies have also made commitments to buying the F-35, and it would damage U.S. prestige to cancel those sales. Yes, dear listener, wouldn't you feel embarrassed and degraded if other nations weren't buying our top-of-the-line jet fighters? I know I'd have to hang my head in shame. But the punchline is the Pentagon is committed to producing 2,400 fighter jets that analysts say could actually weaken America's aviation advantage. One defense analyst said, my prediction is the F-35 will be such an embarrassment that it will be canceled before 500 are built. Shades of the B-1 bomber. That was a program lots of folks tried to kill because it turned out that in every respect it was appearing to be inferior to the B-52 it was supposed to replace. Went to a website to update myself on this aircraft and it was noted that one analyst said the B-1 has considerably evolved its mission scope since its inception in the 1980s, which is a way of telling you, well, it couldn't do what it was supposed to do, so we decided to let it do something else. The website noted it was originally a nuclear bomber plane and They've had to do a lot to make it capable as a conventional plane. It was absent from the first Gulf War and then became more adaptive and (laughs) multi-role, said the vice president of one consultancy company. Oh, am I forgetting to mention the fact that it was supposed to be a supersonic bomber, but that it burns so much fuel when it's supersonic that they don't fly it above the speed of sound now? Of course, on the upside, if anybody does want to start World War III, a B-1 bomber can carry 24 nuclear weapons. So, uh, it's got that going for it. Yeah, apparently the United States outspends the rest of the world on armaments. And no one seems to want to ask the question, does the public profit from this? Because frankly, it is hard to see how that's doing us a lot of good. So, how do we reform our renegade, out of control government? Well, a man named Philip Howard has written a book with some suggestions. It's titled The Rule of Nobody Saving America from Dead Laws and Broken Government. Got a nice review in The Economist, although we have not read the book per se. The magazine noted that a generation ago, after a series of scandals, Australia ditched hundreds of detailed rules governing nursing homes for the elderly and instead of insisting, for example, they should offer at least 80 square feet of floor per acre, yada yada, the government set broad principles. Care homes were told to offer a homelike environment and to respect residents' privacy and dignity. Philip Howard, who is an American lawyer and campaigner for better government, records the alarm that this triggered among regulatory experts and some Australian academics who declared themselves embarrassed by their country. But According to Mr. Howard, anyway, alarm turned to surprise as Australian nursing homes improved measurably as staff and owners were free to think for themselves rather than blindly following checklists. We think there's something to this. Apparently in the book, The Rule of Nobody, America is asked to embrace the same sort of broad principles-based regulation, allowing officials and judges more leeway to use their discretion, common sense, and compassion while enforcing laws. And the book apparently offers up a sad catalog of bureaucratic follies. Some costly ones, like many unneeded tests and procedures for retired Americans covered by Medicare. They write of public subsidies created to help Depression-era family farmers which have since been grabbed by giant agribusinesses that now seem unwilling to give them up. The book notes a rule which prevented... New York's governor from closing an empty juvenile detention center because its unionized employees could not be laid off without a year's notice. I don't think this is exactly a new principle. I think it's been long known by wise people that if you want something done, rather than telling a person exactly how they must go out and do it, you say, here's the goals I want, then stand back and let people's ingenuity solve the problem. And we need to talk at some point about California's ongoing water wars. Our legislature just passed a water bond, which will, at least for a while, in theory, continue the great Ponzi scheme water grab that defines California. Wonderful piece in New Scientist magazine about our water problems here in California. It talks about our twin tunnel proposal, mentioning it's going to cost at least $25 billion. And to quote New scientists, the tunnels are the central plank of a package of measures being put forward as the Bay Delta Conservation Plan. The plan is supposed to benefit wildlife as well as securing the water supply, but an independent scientific review found the DWR, Department of Water Resources, quote, tends to overreach conclusions of positive benefits, unquote, quote, needs to be reconsidered and revamped, unquote which the magazine describes as hardly a ringing endorsement. We'll have more to say about that in the future, but uh, let's do a little follow-up here briefly on this subject we talked about a few months back, the great wipeout of the American chestnut forest due to a deadly Asian fungus. It's been said that a squirrel could jump on a chestnut tree in New England and jump tree to tree all the way down to Alabama. I don't know if that's true, but estimates are that 4 billion American chestnuts got wiped out by this fungus. And efforts to bring it back involve either A, crossbreeding it with some Asian strains that are resistant to the fungus but don't look like our magnificent trees and trying to breed back out the appearance of the original chestnut. Or you can try it by just genetically modifying our chestnuts. In fact, um, there's much hope that a, a GMO chestnut might be the ticket. The magazine asks if this is a, a test of public opinion. There's a lot of opposition to GMOs out there. And one like this that seems so promising might be a way of influencing public opinion, which has been soured by the fact that currently GMOs seem to represent, for the most, and for the most part, corn and soybean that is... Um, away from Monsanto to sell a lot more Roundup. They make the crop Roundup resistant and then blast the hell out of everything else with Roundup killing it and thus, in theory, increasing the crop yields and saving farmers money. That's another topic we need to examine again as things develop. Something else we have to watch in regard to trees is uh, the fact that some ambitious types want to turn Africa into a giant oil palm plantation, much as has happened in Southeast Asia, which has been fairly disastrous. The creation of vast palm oil estates in Asia has caused massive deforestation and some local extinction of species. We're toying with the idea of calling for a palm oil boycott. Uh, I know when I went to Hawaii a couple years ago, the wonderful coconut oil soap vendors have switched Instead of making their soap out of pure coconut oil, it's now a mixture of coconut and palm oil, which I'm sure is a lot cheaper, but comes at the price of wiping out forests in Indonesia and other places. This, this, is, uh, this needs a rethink. New Scientist notes that all is not doom and gloom. And when it comes to palm oil, it can be produced in a more sustainable and responsible manner, which poses a minimal threat to biodiversity in forests and existing livelihoods. And they note that uh, governments should stop expansion of plantations into areas inhabited by endangered primates and other zones of high biodiversity. Hello? Now, we do note that uh, our state capital, Sacramento, is proud of its urban forest. It was a couple years ago rated as uh, among the top ten in the United States. And a couple years back, the Sacramento Tree Foundation tried to get a lot of valley oaks planted. They had a 30,000-tree drive underway. I gotta say, it does send chills up my spine, this, uh, this sudden oak disease that, that's been popping up over near the, on, uh, on near the coast. I shudder to think what that might do to the uh, arboreal landscapes of, uh, of our drier regions. We certainly hope researchers at UC Davis and elsewhere can find a cure for that bit of nastiness. Of course, one cure in California is to not fire up the chainsaw like they did down in Thousand Oaks, which may have to be renamed 800 Oaks. Apparently, when a Westfield shopping center down in Thousand Oaks, California, decided to expand, well, they they went out and cut down a couple hundred trees, including oaks, which the town's named after. Some of them were stately oaks, hundreds of years old. And although a lot of them, dozens of them anyway, required city hall staff approval for removal. The permit was granted after the shopping center made the case that those trees were either in poor health or were potential hazards. Critics noted they saw no signs of disease or rot um, among those trees, which nevertheless came down. Now, a lot of the trees were apparently planted by the owners of the shopping center, but they were there for decades now, and there was a big fight over, well, whether it's native or non-native, etc., etc., and as a result of all this hubbub, they're apparently taking another look at, you know, what trees are going to allow to be cut in the future, which we applaud. And when it comes to cutting down trees, a lot of folks up here in Northern California want to whack down so-called non-native species, which in some cases now have been here for a century or more. Now, we're all for planting native oaks and other species like that, but they can be very slow growing. In the meantime, do we just want to whack down our eucalyptus forests that... Uh, for better or worse, got put in a century ago. I was driving around near Bolinas a few weeks back and noticed some stands of eucalyptus that, well, they may not be native, but they look pretty cool. I know a lot of zealous knuckleheads got involved with cutting down a lot of the eucalyptus out on Angel Island. People pointed out that this eliminated quite a bit of bird habitat and places for the birds to nest. So, boy, I don't know. We'd like to hear from you on this. If you have an opinion, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, in the four minutes or so we have left for this segment, let's take a look at something we've mentioned before. The puzzling question of how it is so many foreign and out-of-state students are turning up at UC. Well, it's been explained at Great length by Alexei Kosov in the B in his article, UC Turns Its Eye to Out of Staters. I think the subheadline explains it all. Non-residents higher tuition helps boost university coffers, which is kind of what we thought was going on. But the piece starts by noting that last spring, representatives from UC Davis made twenty trips to China. Twenty to encourage admitting students to accept their offer to study in the United States. The piece notes that push to look for alternative sources of revenue amid the deep budget cuts of the economic recession. Schools in the UC system increasingly are recruiting non-resident applicants who likely will make up a fifth of all freshmen for 2014. Piece notes that even as state funding has begun to recover, campuses rely on substantial additional fees paid by out-of-state and international students who have brought in hundreds of millions of dollars to the UC system. Okay, Stop. Is this what the UC system is for? I mean, it is the University of California, is it not? We certainly applaud diversity and always have, but shouldn't its primary focus be on California students? That's a question a lot of people are asking. Peace quotes Walter Robinson, who directs undergraduate admissions at UC Davis, said it's a necessary strategy in the current higher education environment He asked the question, is it really worthwhile that people all over the country and all over the world going in and out of all these places recruiting students? Noting that he took part in visits to Hong Kong, Hangzhou, Shanghai, and Beijing last year, to which he answers, the answer to that is absolutely. It's working out marvelously. Well, the Higher Education Policy Institute doesn't feel that way. Spokesman Patrick Callan said California students are being turned away. It sends the message that the university is less available to Californians. They noted that uh, a prospective UC student from Orangevale... Applied to mechanical engineering programs at Davis, Irvine, Santa Barbara, and Riverside, I was not accepted at any of them, despite a 4.1 weighted grade point average and a score of about 2,000 out of the 2,400 on the SAT. She's headed to Northwestern University. Said her parents, The university is betraying its mission by limiting opportunities for California students, especially in the in-demand technical fields that draw the most overseas students. We've created these institutions, we've built the infrastructure for it, now they're training somebody else's workforce that is not going to stay behind and benefit california walter robinson said we're not interested in having the vast majority of our international students coming for one or two countries that's not global diversity but the piece notes, notes that nevertheless the efforts focus on east asia which i think means china and india last year the university spent 1.2 million dollars on out-of-state recruitment but profited by bringing in $40 million in non-resident fees. This needs to be looked at. And as time goes on, we'll hopefully do some looking ourselves. But let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. One way or another, I'm gonna find you. I'm gonna get you, get you, get you, get you. One way or another, I'm gonna